Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Thanks for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 68, Everything You Want to Know About Brown Trout. This is the life history of the brown trout, Salmo Truta. Brown trout also can be known as sea trout for those that migrate between fresh and salt water. The idea for this podcast came from, well, I was at a playground one day, and there was a dad, and he had brown trout on his belt. And I was like, ooh, brown trout. And he's like, how do you know what brown trout look like? I was like, well, I kind of fish for them. I know what brown trout look like. And I was like, you know what? Maybe other people don't know what brown trout look like. So let's do a podcast on it. And this podcast was a work in progress. Don't quote me on anything. Most of this is nicked from the internet and experience. I've got a lot of notes, so sit down. Take notes if you want. This is going to be very rich in vocabulary. There's some words that I'm probably going to mispronounce. And let's just start off with this podcast. So let's start off with everything we want to know about brown trout. If the British Empire went there, brown trout are there. Remember, the British had this huge empire, and they had some free time on their hands when they weren't drinking gin and tonics and sucking on limes. So they brought brown trout with them. And you can go into the whole stocking um, techniques of how it was done back in the day, and we'll go into some more detail about that later but let's just say that brown trout went everywhere that the english did now if you remember the old daily show with craig kilbord he once had on john cleese and craig said john why is it that british food is known for being just so bad you guys are notorious for your cuisine and john cleese sat back in his chair and said craig we were too busy busy conquering the world to worry about our recipes. Something like that. So he basically said they were so busy conquering the whole planet, which is where they stocked all these brown trout, that they didn't have time to work on their cuisine like the French. 
though the French did travel a lot. That's just a side note. Brown trout are considered a smarter fish than other trout. And some of this may be redundant because there's a lot to talk about. Brown trout are the most valuable exotic fish introduced to North America. They first appear in written history as fish with speckled skins by Roman author Elian. Around 200 AD in his publication on the nature of animals. Brown trout are also known as linock, L-I-N-N-O-C-K, peel, P-E-A-L, hurling, H-E-R-L-I-N-G, whiteling, W-H-I-T-L-I-N-G, and ferox, F-E-R-O-X, which translates to larger, more aggressive fish. And as my new boat is a giant brown trout, it is known as the ferox. Brown trout are possibly one of the most genetically diverse vertebrates in the world. Now let's talk about some stuff from way back in the podcast. Phylogeny. But that's not all we're going to talk about. We're going to go over their description. Distribution and location. Reproduction. Feeding and behavior. Tackle. Fishing methods. Favorable brown trout stories. And flies. So first, we're going to go back to way back when we talked about scientific nomenclature and fly fishing. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Brown trout belong to the kingdom Animalia. They're animals. Phylum, chordata. They have a dorsonotochord running the length of their spine. Class, actinopterygii, which is the ray-finned fishes. A-C-T-I-N-O-P. T-E-R-G-I-I. Their order are the Salmoniformes, the salmons. Their family, and remember all families of animals end in I-D-A-E. Family Salmonidae, the Salmonids. Subfamily Salm... Let's see if I can get this right. Salmoninae, S-A-L-M-O-N-I-N-A-E. And their genus is Salmo, which just kind of means salmon. And their species is Truta, which is a Latin name for trout. So they are the salmon trout. There are subspecies, which are the Salmo Truta Fario, F-A-R-I-O, which are river forms found in Sweden and Switzerland streams. Streams, that is. There are the... Salmotruta lacustris, L-A-C-U-S-T-R-I-S, which are the lake-dwelling individuals found in Switzerland. The Salmotruta oxyanus, <laughs> he said anus, O-X-I-A-N-U-S, which translates to oasis. Those are found in Afghanistan. And you have Salmotruta aralensis, A-R-A-L-E-N-S-I-S, found in the Aral Sea. Brown trout are first described by Carlos Linnaeus, Carl von Linnaeus, however you want to describe him. He liked to hang out in Lapland in Sweden. In his book, Systema Naturae, 1758. That's the first time they appear as uh, a described trout. Physical characteristics and descriptions of brown trout. They have dorsal spines, a total of 3 to 4. Their dorsal soft rays are 10 to 15, 
So if you were to look closely at the anatomy and structure of their fins, these are the structures that support them. They have three to four anal spines. They have nine to 14 anal soft rays. And if you were to cut one open, they'd have 57 to 59 vertebrae. What is a brown trout shape, you ask? Well, it's fusiform, being tapered at both the head and the tail. The head is usually little and pointed. The mouth is large, extending mostly after the eye and has a well-developed teeth system. There are teeth on the roof of the mouth that are only in trout and not salmon. Those are vomerine, V-O-M-E-R-I-N-E. Those are specifically on a shaft on the vomer bone, numerous and strongly developed. This is why you do not want to put your fingers across the roof of the mouth of a trout. You do not lip trout like you do a largemouth bass. Adult males have larger curved lower jaws known as kypes, K-Y-P-E, especially during breeding season, which exemplifies sexual dimorphism in this species. For those brown trout and salmon that never completely lose their kypes, the fast-growing skeletal tissue that originally elongated and led to a visually identifiable kype eventually fuses with the more dense dental bones. It's the fusion with these dental bones that leads to a permanent kype that increases in size after each spawning phase. The caudal fin has 8 to 19 rays, and the caudal peduncle is thick and rounded. You recognize those terms from anatomy and physiology of fishes from four years ago. Wow, we've been doing this podcast for four years now, going on five. Brown trout have little scales, so you're not going to notice them. They're not as visible as, say, a tarpon or a carp. Their coloration, and that's the great thing about browns. They come in all these different colors, but the ones we love most are those buttery ones, that that golden buttery brown hue. Those are just Brown trout vary greatly in appearance. Generally, now if you want to just give one description, they're olive green to brown on top, shading to a creamy golden yellow on the sides and an off-white along the belly. We know this is counter-shading and camouflage. This helps them blend in. When an organism looks from the top, they blend in with the bottom. When an organism looks at them from their belly, they look like they're blending in with the sky. They can also be gray-blue colored with numerous spots, also below the lateral line. Remember, the lateral line is also known as the acoustico-lateralis, which is the hearing system. Blackish colored on upper parts of body, usually orange on sides, covered with black spots along their sides, surrounded by pale halos. And during the fall run, some people get brown trout confused with salmon. The salmon that are migrating, the cohos, which they can get confused with have black gums and then the cohos um, usually have a pretty bright white mouth but it's pretty easy to distinguish between a, a large brown and a coho and a large brown and a king sometimes Atlantic salmon though will look like brown trout their adipose fin have a red margin and you'll find that in streams where there are mycid shrimps which have a high protein and um 
oh, what is the red pigment slipping my mind at the moment? That causes these fish to have more brightly colors. Just like flamingos eat the crustaceans and they get the red pigments from them. Brown trout that eat a lot of mice and shrimp will have ridiculously beautiful colors. Dorsal fin with each spot surrounded by a light halo. Frequently, the spots near the lateral line are red. Unlike brook and rainbow trout, the tails of brown trout have few, if any, spots. An article in 2013, I can't remember which magazine, demonstrated how distinctive spots can be used to identify a recaught trout. This was in New Zealand where time after time a trout would be caught and they look at the photographs and this trout would, based on how it ate over the year and over the months, would increase and decrease in size over winter, it would get smaller over summer, fatter. But you could look at the specific spots unique to that fish and that fish could then be identified by more than just that angler. He could post it and other anglers could say, oh, I've caught that same fish. They have distinctive marks. And brown trout can rapidly change their color, getting darker when being aggressive, lighter when being submissive, or in response to changing background colors. The maximum reported age of a brown trout is 38 years. That's almost what I am. The max published weight is 50 kilograms. And let's let's ask Siri what 50 kilograms is in pounds. What is 50 kilograms in pounds? Checking my sources. 50 kilograms converts to about 110 pounds. Wow. 50 kilograms is 110 pounds. That's crazy, Siri. Let's discuss now distribution and location of our brown trout. Brown trout occupy several types of ecosystems, which allows them to occupy various different locations, allowing different roles in that ecosystem, and allowing for less competition of space and resources. This is analogous to butterflies and caterpillars eating different things. Caterpillars eat leaves because it prevents competition with the adults for having to eat. And plus, butterflies wouldn't eat leaves because there's not enough nutrition for flight. You need the high glucose content of nectar. All right. This gives distinct populations, which allows for genetic diversity and isolated gene pools, no pun intended with the word pool. Genes are kept in the same pool as fish migrate back to their natal or native streams. Brown trout prefer a water temperature of 18 to 23 degrees centigrade or 65 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit, which is higher than other salmonids. Brown trout can also tolerate lower oxygen levels. Trout in warmer waters grow more quickly, but tend not to live as long as those in the colder, less productive highland waters, similar to what we found with the largemouth bass. Their depth range can go from zero feet or zero meters to 10 meters. So they've been caught up to 30 meters below the surface, which is 30 plus feet. 10 meters is 30 plus feet. Yeah. Subtropical, 18 degrees to 24 degrees 
and 71 north to 34 north, 25 west to 57 east. They are marine, freshwater, brackish, pelagic, and neritic, or anadromous. Marine is neritic, N-E-R-I-T-I-C, which means relatively shallow part of the ocean between the low tide mark and the continental shelf. Marine being oceanic going. Brackish water is a confluence of tidal salt and freshwater. They are also found in freshwater. Europe and Asia, they're found in the Atlantic, North, White, and Baltic Sea basins from Spain to the Chosa Bay in Russia. Salmotruta lacustris reaches an average length of 16 to 32 inches with a maximum length of 55 inches and about 60 pounds. Dude, that's huge. Smaller, smaller specimens are found in stream headwaters. Of course, there's less resources up there, so they're going to be smaller. Five main ancestral, genetically, or evolutionary isolated lineages of brown trout that were separated from 0.5 to 2 million years ago are the Atlantic, which are mostly anadromous. Anadromous means going back and forth between fresh and salt water. Danubian, D-A-N-U-B-I-N, which are black sea migrations. And these are the most genetically diverse of the lineages. You have the Adriatic Sea version. You have the Marmoratus, meaning marbled. And you have the Mediterranean, which is the, uh, again, very genetically diverse. The native countries to where these fish are found. After the last ice age, so that's 10,000 years ago, the rivers of Britain were populated by wandering sea trout and Loch Ness monsters who found empty habitat niches in which they could um, set up in these newly ice-free rivers. They're found in Andorra, Austria, Belarus, Belgium, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, Faroe Islands, Finland, France, Germany, Guernsey, Hungary, Iceland, Ireland, Isle of Man, Jersey, Latvia, Liechtenstein, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Russian Federation, Serbia, and we were at a bar the other night with a bunch of Serbian dudes. One of them spilled a drink and then got down on the ground and drank it off the dance floor. And we're not nightclub people, but our friends, um, a significant other partner, he works. He's a nightclub manager. So we went to a speakeasy at nine o'clock. You could, couldn't even see your drinks. It's pitch black in there. I'm falling asleep. And then we go to the club next door where it's $300 for a bottle of vodka. And it comes out with an unenthused waitress with a sparkler tape to the bottle. And yeah, I'm just like, dude, $300 for a bottle of Belvedere? That's just ridiculous. But the Serbian dude sipped and lapped his drink off the dance floor. And when it fell, it splashed and some of it got in my eye. So I'm hoping he didn't have like the herpes of the mouth or something because I don't want my eye to be all nasty. Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Ukraine, United Kingdom. The native range's brown trout extends from northern Norway and White Sea tributaries in Russia in the Arctic Ocean to the Atlas Mountains of North Africa. So all this genetic distribution had to do after the last ice age, 10,000 years ago. So you can watch, uh, what was that movie? The Big Storm and Jake Gyllenhaal in New York. 
Yeah, that one. You can watch that. And then we just watched a British movie where these two actors go up into northern England and they talk about all the ice ages forming stuff up there. It was a pretty funny movie. If you've never heard of, is it Tiny Man Trapped in a Box? You're going to have to look it up. Hold on. Small Man Trapped in a Box? This is from the movie, Small Man Trapped in a Box. Yes, Rob Bryden, B-R-Y-D-O-N apostrophe S. Small Man Trapped in a Box. I never heard of this bit until that movie. You can look it up. It's on Netflix as of now, and it's September 10th. But, uh, yeah, that's a funny bit from the movie. Okay, where was I? The western limit of their native range is Iceland in the north Atlantic Ocean, while the eastern limit is the Aral Sea tributaries in Afghanistan and Pakistan, or Pakistan, or Pakistan, depending on how you pronounce it. They are found in Iceland and northernmost rivers of Great Britain and Scandinavia. The Rhone drainage, native only to Lake Geneva Basin, which is entered after last glaciations. If you're from England or other places, it's a glacia. They are native to the Danube and Volga drainages, the upper Danube specifically. For Scottish browns, modern techniques show that trout from different locations differ genetically and that the effect is very marked. The patterns of variation appear to reflect the routes taken by invading trout at the end of the last glaciation, as they recolonize Scotland's emerging freshwaters from rivers or lakes on the edges of the ice. Now, think about where these British guys came from that then went around the world dropping off all their trout. Scotland. So there was mostly Scottish fish that had been dropped around. Introduced widely and are very adaptable, so these brown trout have established themselves well all around the world. Several countries report adverse ecological impacts after introduction. Why? Well... Brown trouts have been implicated in reducing native fish populations, especially other salmonids, specifically brook trout and golden trout. Now, golden trout are a specific species, not palomino trout, which are called golden trout here on the East Coast. We're talking about golden trout in the Sierra Nevada mountains. They eat all these fish via predation, displacement, and food competition. So you put in a non-native brown trout, and being a voracious predator, it's going to eat up all your other fish. People have tried to ameliorate this problem with barriers to prevent spawning migrations to decrease populations. They also use electroshocking and voluntary killings to help prevent the spread. There are places in the Shenandoah National Park here in Virginia where you're supposed to uh, BFR, that's big effing rock, your brown trout. You take it out on the shoreline and drop a rock on its head and kill it. They do not want them in there. At one point, it was thought to be, hey, good idea. Let's put brown trout in. But then you start to realize that some of these introductions are not a good idea. Bad bucket biologist, bad. Brown trout have a high habitat tolerance and adaptability and can live in what is just called a disturbed area. You remember on our talk with Paul Moynistar that he said they're brown trout in the ditches in Dublin. It's pretty cool. Not all plant stockings result in established populations. Just like they put salmon here in the Potomac River in the 1800s, it didn't take. In 1864, now these are some good trivia questions. 1864, first introductions were in Australia. 
in the from the River Itchen in England. In 1866, a tributary of the River Derwent in Tasmania was stocked with Browns. In 1890 and 1892, Natal and K provinces in South Africa. 1868-1900, Himalayas in northern India. 1886, Newfoundland was stocked with brown trout. 1909, brown trout were established in the mountains of Kenya. The only Canadian province without brown trout are the Yukon and Northwest Territories. 1904, they were stocked in Argentina. 1950s to 1960s, Kerguelen Islands in the southern Indian Ocean. 1883, they were introduced to the U.S. from the Black Forest, Fario and Lacustrous varieties. 1884 and 1885, Scottish versions were introduced, with 1884 having first introductions in the U.S. in Michigan's Baldwin River. Baldwin Creek Lodge is where Mike Batchkey, who sells and makes my boat, has his place. A tributary of the Pierre Marquette by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Commission. The Loch Levin strains, Loch meaning lake, is more often found in the western United States, while the German brown, that's quote-unquote brown, is found more toward the Midwest and the East. Further eggs from Scotland, Germany, England were introduced in the U.S. And of course, see the late Dr. Robert Benke's works on genetically breeding these in the U.S. for one stockable species of monocultured browns. Whew. Brown trout are found in streams, ponds, rivers, and lakes, which can vary their coloration due to diet, surroundings, etc. The lacustrine morph of brown trout is most usually potadromous, P-O-T-A-M-O-D-R-O-M-O-U-S, which means migration occurs wholly within fresh water. They migrate from lakes into rivers or streams to spawn, which would be the ones we fish for like on Lake like uh, Lake Ontario. So you're fishing for um, lake runs in Oak Orchard and the Salmon River. Little Sandy. Although evidence indicates stock spawns on windswept shorelines of lakes, Samotruda morpha fario forms stream resident populations. So the ones that... That only makes sense. Typically in alpine streams, but sometimes in larger rivers. So in larger rivers and alpine streams where there's more wind, um, they basically change their behavior. Anadromous and non-anadromous morphs coexist in the same rivers, appear genetically identical. So some decide to migrate and some don't, even though they're genetically identical. What determines whether or not they migrate remains unknown. These individuals spend one to five years in fresh water, and six months to five years in salt water. Juveniles mature in three to four years. Juvenile trout from lake populations move from their natal inlets to lakes during the first two years of life. They prefer cold, well-oxygenated upland waters, although their tolerance limits are lower than those of rainbow trout and favors large streams in the mountainous areas with adequate cover in the form of submerged rocks, undercut banks, and overhanging vegetation. Ah, those are all the places we throw our flies. Brown trout, again, tolerate, they have a tolerance for warmer temperatures. 
so the tolerance is lower than that of rainbows. The migratory forms can grow to significantly larger sizes for their age due to the abundant forage fish in the waters where they spend most of their lives. Sea trout are more commonly females in less nutrient-rich rivers. So the reason they're going from these streams to the lakes and oceans is because there's more resources out there and less competition in a smaller location. So you can be a, a, a big fish in a little pond. You're actually a, a big fish in a big pond out there because there's shrimps and scallops and lobsters and baby otters and whatever else. Don't quote me on baby otters because I don't know if that's in my list coming up. But there's more food in the ocean than in these streams where they're born where they might be lacking in nutrients. Next subject is feeding and behavior. Brown trout like deer are mainly diurnal or crepuscular, meaning they're active in low photo periods. So early morning, late in the evening. Brown trout are opportunistic. They eat what comes their way. Larger fish shift toward a fish-based diet from an invertebrate-based diet to not only increase their metabolic requirements, but to prevent direct competition with smaller fish for the same resources. And that's just the stuff I love. You know, my background in biology, I just love the fact that they've evolved to do that. They're like, all right, so I'm at a certain size now. I'm going to stop eating the little stuff so the my homeboys down the street, the little, little kids can eat the bugs. I'm going to go eat myself a sculpin. Their diet is varied. Brown trout often become very selective towards certain foods during different times of the year. They are going to key in on what is most abundant at that period of time. It's kind of like us right now in farmer's market. It's apples and squashes, onions, potatoes. It's the seasonality, and they key in on that. They tend to grow bigger, live longer, and tolerate a wide range of habitat types and acidic waters that either brook or brown trout don't want. So they can take advantage of that opportunity and more resources by being a little more hardy. Sea and lake trouts forage in pelagic and littoral. I said littoral, L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L, habitats, while sea trouts mainly stay close to the coast, not very far from the estuaries or natal rivers. So they're going to be out in the deeper waters. Brown trout are territorial and begin establishing territories as juveniles. Fingerling brown trout seems to act as an opportunistic predator, and the consumption of different prey seems to be influenced by their accessibility, predation risk, and their energetic value. So if there's birds around, they're not going to feed. If it's dark, when the birds are less active, they're going to go feed more. How does a brown trout move, you ask, to feed upon these organisms? Well, they locomote via subcarangiform. There is a more uh, marked increase in wave amplitude along the body with the mass, vast majority of the work being done by the rear half of the fish. So if you look at a trout, the last half of the fish is what's going to move back and forth, and that's going to propel, and then they'll steer with their pectoral fins. That's the layman's terms. In general, the fish body is stiffer, making for higher speed, but reduced maneuverability. Now, if you want to start throwing particular flies, you've got to know what a brown trout feeds. Are you going to match the hatch or are you just going to start throwing stuff? Here's what brown trout throughout the world eat. 
Ammo Didite. Sand lances. A M M O D Y T I D A E. They eat shrimps and prawns, crayfish, cladocerans, which are water fleas in Daphnia, amphipods, we know those as scuds, copepods, leeches, tadpole shrimps, roundworms, gastropods, which means stomach foot, spiders, snails. The insects they eat are caddisflies, trichopterans, mayflies, ephemeropterans, true flies, dipterans, stoneflies, plecopterans, beetles, coleopterans, wasps, ants, bees. Those are the social insects. Those are hymenopterans. Is that right? And butterflies, the lepidopterans. The fishes that they eat. So you articulation nation meat throwers. Atlantic herring juveniles, European ciscos, C-I-S-C-O, whitefish, European bullhead sculpins, Eurasian minnows, mountain galaxies, G-A-L-A-X-I-A-S, which are found in the snowy mountains down under, three-spined sticklebacks, sprats, S-P-R-A-T-S, not as opposed to like spats, what you put on your shoes back in the day. They eat arctic char, sand lances, sablefish, smelt, Atlantic salmon, pike perch, roach, European perch, and sea lampreys. Other things that brown trout have been known to eat, fish eggs, oh we know they eat fish eggs, frogs, salamanders, small mammals including mice, shrews, and voles, birds that either fall out of the nests or dead birds on the surface. And then again, brown trout are also fed upon by sea and chestnut lamprey, northern pike, harbor seals, gray seals, European otters, brown water snakes, ospreys, minks, herons, elves, maybe that's eels, and cormorants. Sea and lake trout Forage in pelagic and littoral habitats. We already did that. Juveniles mainly feed on aquatic and terrestrial insects. Adults on mollusks, crustaceans, and small fish. So now you know sort of what your flies should be looking like. Reproduction. Let's talk about the birds and the bees of the brown trouts. Brown trout reproduce in the fall in northern hemispheres and spring in the southern hemisphere. Similar to brook trout. They're sexually mature at three to four years and can live up to 20 years. Females may spawn up to eight to 10 years. 20% may die from travel and exhaustion. Males may perish after spawning due to travel and exhaustion. These fish continue growth after sexual maturity. They are dioecious, meaning of two houses, male, Brown trout have male sex organs. Females have female sex organs. Brown trout do not die after spawning unless it's due to the exhaustion after travel. There are what known as triploids. We are diploids. We are 2N. So meiosis. There's meiosis and mitosis. Mitosis is regular cell division. Your hair, fingernails, your skin, all those parts of your body that regenerate, you know, like every two weeks to six months. Like the intestines you're walking around with now are not the ones you had a year ago. Dude, just cellular division. 
your sex cells have meiosis where it's half the genetic information. So you get 23 pair from your mom, 23 pair from your dad. That creates, so each one of those is N. 23 is N, 23 is N. So 1N plus 1N equals 2N. 2N is 46. You can have what are known as triploids, which are sort of genetically um, made in a hatchery by increasing the water temperatures after fertilization. And they use that metabolic energy instead of um, making themselves look all pretty and nice for spawning. They have no interest in spawning. Spawning's not in their mind. So they're going to use that energy for growth and not reproduction. So when you see these disgustingly huge brown trout caught out of sewer ditches below hatcheries in New Zealand, they're usually triploids or in the Great Lakes. You might have some giant fish because it spends all that extra energy just feeding and growing rather than having to worry about um, competition and uh, digging reds and all the other stuff that goes on with spawning. Hybrids, you have brook and brown trout hybrid, which is known as a tiger trout. They are infertile. They also may breed with Samo Salar, which is the... So brown trout can cross with uh, Atlantic trout. Atlantic salmon, I'm sorry. Atlantic salmon. Sexual dimorphism of colors during reproductive seasons. So males and females will look differently based on that time of the year. Females may secrete extra slime to protect them during red construction so when their tails digging all that gravel that slime will help them not lacerate up their tail males develop thicker skin to protect them from spawning competitors which bite each other they spawn october to november and january to february in europe april to june in uh, australia spawning in fall with lower water ensures flood events won't affect eggs so let me read that again. They spawn and fall when water temp levels are lower. So if there's a flood, it won't affect their eggs. We can read that so many different ways. Uh, they exhibit external fertilization. So female digs the nest, male fertilizes eggs, and it's done that way. There's no key that fits into a lock, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, Lacustrian populations undertake migrations to tributaries and lake outlets to spawn. Rarely spawning on stone, wave-washed lake shores. It's just not an environment conducive to eggs. You don't want all that aggressive water. They spawn in rivers and streams with swift currents, usually characterized by downward movement of water into gravel. Spawning takes place normally more than one time. Both sexes usually survive spawning, and anadromous trout migrate back to the sea or lake in autumn or over winter in rivers and migrate in spring. 5 to 70% repetitive spawners in Norway. How about that for a fact? A typical female produces about 900 eggs per pound of body weight at spawning time. Up to 10,000 yellow, orange, amber eggs are possible. Fishing for steelhead and browns in the fall? Want to know what color egg to throw? I just told you, yellow, orange, and amber. Fertilized eggs are deposited in a depression in the gravel 2 to 30 centimeters deep. This is known by the, as the red, R-E-D-D. It's made by the female. Red sizes are 5 to 50 millimeters in diameter, depending on the size of the female. 
Sea trout are bigger, which equals a bigger red. Reds are located in gravel transition zones between pool and riffle habitats. The depth of the red is directly correlated to the size of the female. The female will test the gravel with her anal fin and will dig the red if she, if and only she finds it suitable. She turns on her side to release her eggs. Eggs are four to six millimeters deep. So if you're throwing egg flies behind them, they should be bouncing right along the bottom. Eggs naturally are non-buoyant and they are made to roll if they come loose from the nest and lodge somewhere where they will hopefully, uh, well, you'll find out. Several males compete to fertilize, but spawning occurs in mating pairs where male guards female against other males. So the males, that's, you know, they're going to bite each other. They're fighting to pass on their genetic material. They will hide their brood, but they do not guard their brood. So fertilize, wham, bam, thank you, man, they're gone. Female then covers fertilized eggs with gravel by restirring the fine sand and fine gravel. The eggs in deep reds are less vulnerable to spates and washouts and more vulnerable to low oxygen concentrations and pollution. Eggs only get enough oxygen when in gravel. So it's the porous material and the spaces between the gravel particles that allows the oxygenation to go through. Hatching of the eggs is temperature dependent, varying from 21 weeks at 2 degrees centigrade to 4 weeks at 12 degrees centigrade. How many eggs hatch varies enormously depending on the quality of the water and gravel. It can be as low as 4%. So 4% of 10,000 or the top end exceed 80% where conditions are really good. At 77.8 degrees centigrade, the eggs will hatch in 60 days, but at 4.7 degrees, they'll hatch at 97 days. This is just random. That's out of place. After hatching at 12 millimeters, larval brown trout remain in the gravel for two to three weeks until they are about 25 millimeters long. Now, let's go over the early life stages of brown trout. The egg stage, spawning to hatching. This stage is used instead of using an embryonic stage because there are aspects such as those to do with the egg envelope that are uh, not just embryonic aspects. Okay. The larval stage from hatching to all fin rays are present and the growth of fish scales. Growth of fish scales is called squamation. S-Q-U-A-M-A-T-I-O-N. A key event is when the notochord associated with the tail fin and the vertebrae ventral side of the spinal cord develops and becomes flexible. A transitional stage, the yolk sac larval stage, lasts from hatching to the absorption of the yolk sac. Yolk sac, a.k.a. maternal provisioning, gives them the nutrients to sustain themselves until they can feed on their own. The juvenile stage starts when the transformation or metamorphosis from larvae to juveniles is complete. That is when the larva drop the features of a juvenile fish that include all the fin rays are present and that scale growth is underway. The stage completes when the juvenile becomes adult. That is when it becomes sexually mature or starts interacting with other adults. What is a fry, you ask? Well, a fish fry, brown trout fry specifically, refers to a recently hatched fish that has reached the stage 
where its yolk sac has almost disappeared and its swim bladder is operational to the point where the fish can actively feed for itself. These fish need to find shelter from predators and have to compete or outcompete siblings for food. They need water that is not too fast that it will not wash them downstream. This is their most vulnerable stage, and there are flies that represent sack fry. Fingerlings refers to fish that have reached the stage where the fins can be extended and where scales have started developing throughout the body. In this stage, the fish is typically about the size of a finger. A par, P-A-R, a trout of less than one year, recognizably trout now, but have distinctive fingerprints or par marks along which they lose as the par get older. Par have similar habitat needs to fry, plenty of cover to hide from each other and from predators, especially fish-eating birds. These fish can cope with deeper and faster water, and in order to find their own territory, they will gradually drop downstream with the flow rather than fight their way up against the flow. It's quite difficult whether to tell whether a par is a salmon or trout. One clue is the habitat. Salmon par tend to prefer faster riffles than trout as they are stronger swimmers. Larva will metabolize a yolk sac. Let's go over this again. So, larva metabolize a yolk sac. When they emerge to begin feeding in the water column on invertebrates, these are known as fry. Fry mature fingerlings having scales and working fins. Success in finding and defending a feeding territory is positively correlated to size of fry and to mother size. Brown trout larvae can be found in clean grab with flowing waters. Brown trout are territorial and begin establishing territories as juveniles and continue to protect their territory or lie as adults. Juvenile trout from lake populations move their natal from their natal inlets to lakes during the first two years of life. River smolt will school together and move to the sea in groups. Life history and spawning behavior is similar to that of Salmo salar, the Atlantic salmon. Lacustrine or lake populations undertake migration to tributaries and lake outlets to spawn, rarely spawning on stone or wave-washed lakeshores. Can we go over this? Spawns in rivers and streams with swift current, usually characterized by downward... Let's see... Okay, uh, they prefer cold, well-oxygenated, juvenile mature. This is a bit redundant. All juveniles seem to have the genetic ability to smultify and migrate, and some small, some are dry streams all migrate. In other streams, almost none seem to migrate. Factors triggering the decision of an individual smultify are not well understood. If migration is impossible, smolts may interrupt migration and become resident again. In most rivers, a greater proportion of females than males seems to migrate, apparently a response to a greater need for reproductive energy. Therefore, sex ratio is usually skewed towards females and smolts. Large anadromous females may spawn with small resident males. The reverse is not reported, but is expected to be possible. What's up, cougars? Smolts start to migrate downstream in spring when temperatures increase from low winter temperatures. During smultification, the brown trout assures, assumes a silvery color due to thyroid hormones, which masks par marks on their sides. 
Color change is an adaptation to prevent predation. The swim bladder increases in size. The brown trout will increase in length versus mass. Gills increase capacity for use in salt and brackish waters. Special cells in the gills either take in or excrete salt, and the fish's kidney adapts either to produce loads of or little urine, depending on the type of water around the fish. Loose positive rheotaxis, R-H-E-O, means flow or current, is the ability and need to face into the current. So we just learned something very cool. Why do fish always face upstream in rivers? It's called loose positive rheotaxis, which means that they have the ability and need to face into the current. That's what brings food. That's what brings oxygen. Fish follow that current to next larger body of water, and that's how they can find their way upstream. They move to sea. The move to sea allows them a greater food resource, which allows for greater growth, a resource the river-dwelling fish do not get to take advantage of. Males can produce sufficient milt or sperm while remaining resident in the river. Large henfish of both salmon and sea trout may mate with small young males often called precocious par. Most seagoing trout are females, thus larger sizes, larger egg quality, larger egg size. After at least 18 months at sea, sea trout start to return to rivers to spawn. The overfishing of sand eels in the North Sea is likely to affect the numbers of sea trout returning to their home rivers. They just don't have enough food, I guess, and energy to migrate. Their homing accuracy is not as high as in the Atlantic salmon. Whiteling, again, are small trout in an estuary. Most maturing whitelings are males, and the proportion of whitelings might be up to 30% among spawners. Whitelings usually sneak into spawn in reds of large couples, as resident males do too. Photoperiod is the dominant trigger for fish to migrate in addition to temperature. They move through the rivers at night. Why? Less predation. Color changes from silver to match the surrounding river. That is known as the desmultification. There's a microscopic comparison of scale growth rings will determine if a fish is a a river has spent time at sea as will have grown more and faster. So you can do basically like uh, otoliths and like tree rings. You can depend, tell what the environment and where this organism has been. Large males will attack, injure, or often kill sneakers. Those are those uh, little guys that are sneaking in. And they're using the sexual dimorphism of that huge jaw with those big teeth to attack those little fish sneaking in to fertilize the females. After one spawning season as white lean or resident male, individual trouts may spawn again as large sea trout. Now the factors triggering the choice, it's quotation choice, to reproduce as white lean or as large male seems to be related to body size of young pars since larger pars more frequently develop the whiteling tactic, and smaller pars, the large male tactic. During upriver migrations, the silvery color evolves into a dark breeding color. The skull of males enlarges and the lower jaw develops a kipe. After winter and river, the fish will desmultify again and return to sea. Whew, 
All right, so that's the meat and potatoes. That's 50 minutes of, uh, of brown trout. Let's talk about fishing for them. And we can apply all these previous 70, 107 podcasts into this. Mostly go back to the uh, introduction to salmon, steelhead, and lake run brown trout fishing and some fish stories. So how do you fish for brown trout? Well, brown trout can be caught on fly. Brown trout caught on fly are less likely to die after release than trout caught on bait. And to me, bait and spin fishing for trout is just blasphemous to me. I don't know why. Bigger fish, again, feed at night, less predation, and they're the they're less likely to be picked up. You can't see the brown trout coming as easily at night. Throw streamers against the bank. Fish where light is low. Fish where a fish can hide from predators. Have access to protection and cool, clean, oxygenated water and can dart out to feed. So you want to find that structure where that trout is going to have its lie and fish around it. But then again, Kelly Gallup said that you might be fishing that the whole time and have like a 30-inch brown trout of two feet behind you just sitting on a sandbar. So it depends. You just kind of have to keep working on it. Some of my memorable browns. Now let's talk about gear first. Uh, I mean, any depends on what you're throwing, where you're fishing. So what do I fish with for browns? Out west, it's usually a 9'6 weight. If I'm out here, probably the same. Depends on if I'm throwing dry flies or streamers or mice patterns. But it's the typical gear. I mean, same thing I'd be fishing for largemouth bass, I guess, if I'm trying to get a, a big brown. Uh, same leaders. Yeah, it's. I, I didn't really write any notes. I just have the word gear. There's not much I can really say about that. It's your standard fishing equipment. Memorable browns. Well, my first brown trout was on Spruce Creek during a trico hatch. And that was at Donnie Beaver's Paradise in the summer of 2000. And I caught it on a foam Bill Skelton beetle right underneath some willows. And I can close my eyes and remember that day. It was with Tom and we had a guide up there. We were right behind the, the fly shop, Spruce Creek fly shop. And they were trout rising everywhere. And, and I really hadn't fished for trout before. It was really my first brown and my first rainbow. If you don't want to count a rainbow, I caught it a farm once down by Graves Mountain Lodge. Um, I can just—it was probably seventeen-inch brown, Spring Creek. Spring Creek Browns usually are more coppery, golden color. I, I've known that. Same with the Mossy Creek here in Virginia. Other notable brown trout. The largest brown trout I ever caught was on a sucker spawn in the Douglaston Salmon Run. We thought it was a king salmon until we landed it. The thing was huge. I'll never forget that my buddy Chris had no idea how to net fish and he's chasing it up and down river. And after I landed it, Vince Wilcox, you know, Vince, his dad was fishing with us and he just tipped his hat to me and was like, well done kid. That fish was awesome. It was a great day too. Uh, Another one, Tom and I were fishing Mossy Creek in the summer of 2001. It was right before... 9-11, so it must have been August, or maybe it was 2002, I don't remember. Either way, we're out on Mossy Creek, and it's the private stretch, there's a little bridge over the creek, and I'm like, it's a bridge, man, it's it's shade, there's structure, there's got to be a big fish in there, and I take the dumbest looking foam 
fly with grizzly legs on it and just throw it onto the bridge and twitch twice and I get this huge kite brown that doesn't even fit in my net. I don't remember like a, a great fight. The fish was all covered in mud. It didn't make for great pictures. But again, just more of like that leopardy color. I consider there's like two types of browns. There's like the Spring Creek, copper, black speckle spots on them. They're like tigers and leopards. And then you have the more blue and red haloed spotted ones with the buttery bellies. First mouse caught fish was on the Dreamstream. Tom and I were fishing. It was July of 2009. And I had my first foam mice. And I've actually got one right here. It's it's uh, the splat rat. It's black foam. It's got a chenille tail and weed guard on a one-aught bass hook. And I just basically crossed through it across and stripped it downstream. And they kept coming up and bumping it. And finally, I caught like a 16-inch brown on it. It was the first time I ever caught a fish on a... Mouse pattern. I was it was ecstatic. And now for warm water, top water, Meads gutless frog. Just Google it. M E A D E S. I swear by it. One of the most mem- the most memorable, probably one of my favorite. I've caught big ones, but the colors of this one. It was October or late September on the Blue River, right above the confluence of Dillon Reservoir in Frisco, and I've got my bacon streamer and I'm fishing it with that old Orvis nine foot what was that model it was the one with the the rod dampening technology in it the trident TL it was this green blank black metal butt it was nothing fancy it was a heavy rod but it could throw a fly and my dad dropped me off and he went into town and it was snowing and I it's like behind that rock, there's got to be a trout. And I threw the streamer and twitched twice. And a small, maybe, you know, 14-inch brown trout. But the colors on it were just like chocolates and butter and blues and reds. It was just it was such a pretty fish. And then I moved upstream. And all of a sudden, I start hearing. And I already landed like three more rainbows on the streamer. And this is maybe maybe you know, a 30-yard stretch of, of river. And I come to a cliff, and there's just huge mayflies coming off. They were big. I mean, they must have been like size 10 blooming olives or a drake. I don't know. I mean, it, was, it was late September. So it could have been some drakes left over, some residuals. And these trout just porpoising. And I never really seen a hatch like that in the snow. And it was just beautiful. The trees are covered in like six inches of snow and I have no idea where I am. I think there's going to be bears coming out after me. And I've got lime wolves on me that I picked up at the Orvis catalog clearance sale. I got like 200 of them for a dollar. And they're already pre-treated with floating. I take out a nice long piece of tippet, tie on like three or four X, long cast and drift. And I probably got like five or six browns and rainbows out of this hole in five minutes. And as soon as it started, it was just, it was over. Just, I can just remember these little sailboats drifting down. I've never really been into a hatch like that ever again. That was 1999. And then we drive into Denver and it's like 85 degrees and I'm wearing like four layers because I've been fishing in this huge snowstorm. Never going to forget that. It was, it was awesome. And then there's a guy in the parking lot walking in. He's like, how'd you do? And I just gave him a handful of lime wolves. I'm like, if you see a hatch, throw these. I don't think I gave him any bacon flies though. 
One of the smaller fish browns that I caught was with Chris. That same year I caught the monster brown. We were at the compactor or refrigerator hole in the Salmon River and fishing a sucker spawn. It's like a seven-inch brown. And as I pull him in, he's just barfing up eggs everywhere. And this thing has got a gigantic distended belly because it's full of eggs. And I've got a picture somewhere. It's a fingerling almost. And its gut is just drooping. And you can look down its mouth and it's just eggs. And it's barfing up eggs everywhere. Another super memorable brown. Um, sight casting. Pale morning duns. On 69 Ranch. In Colorado. Middle Fork of the, the South Platte. Leading into that reservoir. I've caught a bunch of browns before. Uh, I don't really fish for trout much anymore. I've caught one brown trout in I don't know how many years. Another memorable brown was I was on my way to a bachelor party in West Virginia. And you ever ask why I might be limping after a long day with my leg? There was a little incident with another bachelor party group. My, my knee got twisted pretty bad. But I've got like 40 minutes to fish Mossy Creek on my drive down 81 to hop over to West Virginia. And I've got this big, fat, ugly, six-millimeter katydid fly that I tied. It's basically just three-millimeter green foam, tied it, glued together with rubber cement, and then some rubber legs tied with a loop knot. And I'm running up and down Mossy Creek because I don't have time. I'm wearing, like, flip-flops and shorts, probably no shirt, with just, like, three flies in, in my pants pocket or on my lanyard. And... I see this spot, and I'm like, there's got to be a fish there. And I throw it. It drifts a foot right along that cut bank. Fish comes up, set the hook, beautiful 16-inch brown trout. And that's in the pretty popular spot. I mean, it's not that far from the parking lot of Mossy. Don't usually catch fish that big up there. I wish Mossy was closer. I'd fish that a lot more often. Any other notable brown trout? Hmm. Tom and I have caught some monsters in the Salmon River. He caught some that are just disgustingly big. Always trying to get him to come back out, but he's he's too busy. I want to say that's about it for uh, memorable browns. For flies, you know, your meat streamers, Articulation Nation. Look at the stuff that Kelly Gallup ties. Look at Mike Schmidt. Look at Rich Strollis. Um, look at Tyler from Autumn Siren Flies. Look at... Um, Pat Cohen, they tie some pretty, pretty meaty stuff in the summertime. Trichos, foam beetles, Chernobyl ants, brown trout love ants. They love beetles. I don't think we've ever caught a brown trout on the damsel nymph. Your wet flies, your standard, uh, flashback pheasant tail, man. So we're going to Ohio next week. Hopefully we'll do a podcast up there. If I get into some musky and try and track down Ethan Smith of Smith fly, and maybe Mike Schmidt of Angler Choice Fly. See if we can get on some muskie. But uh, we got a wedding next week. So I've got like seven days of just hanging out with the Russians. So if I don't go fishing, I'm just going to tie up. Uh, I've got 200 hooks with me. So we'll see how many flashback, soft hackle, beadhead or non-beadhead pheasant tails I can tie. That's mostly going to be for the Project Healing Waters trip on November 1st and 2nd on the Salmon River. Plus, it's just a great fly around here. We get all sorts of fish on it. Books on brown trout, modern streamers, tactics, Kelly Gallup. Um, I'm sort of out of the book game anymore. I don't really you know, read much fly fishing books anymore. 
James Prosec, fly fishing the 41st. That's going to give you so much information on brown trout, the life history. I'd say it's analogous to reading Michael Pollan's book, uh, The Botanist's Desire, about Johnny Appleseed and, and the establishment of apples around a certain latitude, which is pretty much the same. If you can grow apples there, you can probably grow brown trout. So many more things I want to say. So many more memorable brown trout. Uh, Danny Franks just caught a monster, or there's a monster brown trout story in Orvis News right now, but if you're listening to this two years later, it's obsolete. Send me your brown trout pictures. Post them on the on the Facebook page. I think that's about it. It's an hour of brown trout. We covered a whole lot. That's 12 pages of notes. I managed to do it in one hour. Let's send this off to Jason, and hopefully, Jason, you can make it up this year, and maybe we can float the salmon with the ferox. So until next time, it's going to be Salmon River Podcast, maybe a muskie, and then it's off to uh, winter fishing for carp. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please go to ProGuideDirect.com. Enter my name in the search. You'll find all of my suggested and endorsed products by those. I definitely get a commission check on those. If you need some flies, please contact me. As again, this uh, podcast costs me about $150 a year. Money-wise, it took me three months to write this one, believe it or not. So if you want to help support me, help pay the bills here, either hire me, send your friends to hire me, buy some flies. I'll see you all at Somerset and Lancaster coming up. That's it, folks. Go have fun and enjoy your fall fishing.